We're entering into a, a new phase now in this consideration of the working of the Spirit because we're moving over into the New Testament and this side of the cross. And it's the same God, it is the same Spirit, and His working in many ways is very similar, and He's touching the hearts of men, He's renewing hearts, He's guiding His people, He's transforming lives, and we will see that this morning. So we'd like to think about the, how the Spirit of God moved the apostles, and that is the twelve, including the Apostle Paul, who he says was of himself, was born out of due time, hardly felt himself worthy to be called an apostle. This doesn't say this morning that the Spirit of God moved in the apostles, but, but we are also speaking of that this morning. But he moved the apostles. He changed their lives. He had a mission for them, a life-changing mission, a message for them to give. And they themselves were, were transformed men as the Lord worked with them. I'd like to think about these, these men just a little. The, uh, as we read about the, the twelve... We read about men who had varied personalities. Some were outspoken. Some we hardly hear make any comment. Uh, these men, it seemed many times, lacked understanding. And in one particular case, the case of Thomas, extreme doubt. Like the man could hardly get himself to believe what he was hearing had taken place. And I've wondered before, and I'm sure that you have, as you've viewed these men, why did the Lord choose such men as this? This is a, a pretty rotten bunch. That They really are perhaps a cross-section of, of humanity. But Lord, like, couldn't you have chosen more noble men than this? Have you ever wondered that? All the mistakes. Jesus had to rebuke them. They doubted his resurrection. Why did he choose men like this? And we would just take you back again to the thought earlier this week that, that what the Lord wants is not really something amazing and fantastic. He wants, he wants a piece of nothing that he can work with and transform. So pray the Lord this morning that you can become nothing. If you think you have a pretty good starting point, I would say this morning you have a great disadvantage. If you think you are something, and we'll get to this later on a little bit today and more perhaps on Friday. If you think you came from a, from a good family... If you just feel pretty good that your father is a minister or an elder or, or your, all your uh, siblings are in the church or everything seems to look good on the outside, if those thoughts are in your mind this morning, you are at a great disadvantage. The Lord's work in you will need to probably be delayed until you become nothing. So this group of men that the Lord chose are a wonderful sample of humanity in its poor state. 
And that's what he chose for apostles in his church. Paul says this. Let's turn there to 1 Timothy 1.16. As he talks just a little bit about himself. And this is one of the few, the few times that you will find the words, me first, in the scripture. But this is what he says. Verse 15 of 1 Timothy 1, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That was a very, very good starting point for him. Of whom I am chief. He had come to that point in awareness by the Spirit of God. Howbeit, for this cause I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. In other words, he's saying the intent was that, that others could take hope as they saw the kind of men that the Lord was able to suffer long with, bear with, and eventually <clears throat> transform into men and women of God. So very ordinary men. These men were after the resurrection. You remember how for 40 days the scripture says that Jesus was with them now and then speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. But those men, especially immediately following the resurrection, this has been mentioned already this week, uh, lacked orientation. They didn't know quite where they were and, and finally one of them said, I'm, I'm just going to go fishing. I'm just, I don't know for sure what's going on, but I feel comfortable fishing. Very ordinary men. I'm going to use an acronym <clears throat> this morning again just to help keep our, our notes and thoughts together. And the acronym is simply the word Apostle. A-P-O-S-T-L-E. So we'd like to think about the Spirit of God this morning moving in ordinary men that the Bible calls the apostles. First of all, we know that, that this <coughs> transformation began to take place on the day of Pentecost. And the word, the, the letter A here in apostle simply means all filled. And we're speaking of the filling of the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. These men were given this promise. This promise that there would be power come from heaven. And this came in the pouring out of the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost. An amazing thing took place. There was, there was actually more than the 12 there. There was 120 there in that room. And there began to, it was a rushing, a sound of a rushing mighty wind. No actual wind, but the sound was there, evidence of a moving of the Spirit of God. And there were cloven tongues that sat up on each of them, and they began to speak, and speak with other tongues, as the Spirit gave them utterance. And they came out of that room, and out into some place, perhaps, where they could be seen, and began to speak the works of God. And I don't think we need to spend a lot of time wondering or debating about where the miracle was, whether it was in the speaking or whether some 
transformation of sound took place between the speaker and the hearer, or whether there was something took place miraculously in the ears of the hearer, I think that's all settled by these words, the Spirit gave them utterance. He gave them utterance. It was a miraculous utterance. They were speaking with other tongues, and it was for the purpose of edification. And as you see that picture there on the day of Pentecost, the Scripture says that there were, there were people from all over the place. And what that means is that God has an interest in taking the gospel all over the place, spreading it everywhere. And so no matter how insignificant any of these people were, as they were back in the crowd and speaking some other language, God made it miraculously so that they could hear this gospel. There's something else that this means. <clears throat> Just as the Lord spoke in many languages to all of these people, that, mean, <clears throat> that means he also understands your language. He understands the language even of your heart. There's something very powerful here and very comforting as you may have some feeling sometimes that no one understands you or your thought pattern or the thought pattern of your family uh, no one seems to be in sync with. God is in sync with it and He understands it. And His moving can take place in your heart and He can hear your prayers no matter what your accent is. We make fun of each other's accents and all over the countries there's people esteeming their own dialect better than another and making fun of certain areas of the country that they, they go into and can't hardly understand the people and come back and tell the funny story about how they were in some, some uh, state here in the United States and stopped at a, at a roadside stand and found out they were selling gripes. And they take this hilarious story home. But the fact is, the Lord understands the word gripes. He knows what they are. No matter what our dialect, no matter what our slant, no matter what our communication, our language, this shows us that the Lord understands and wants to communicate with us just as He communicates with all men. The P in the word apostle means preaching with passion. This is one of the amazing evidences of the work of the Spirit of God in these men. Remember, these were men who had fled in the garden. These were men who went home bewildered after the crucifixion. One of these men claimed he did not even know the Lord, and he declared it three times so that he could just take care of himself as he warmed by the fire. But on this day and forward, these men were preaching, and they were preaching with passion, and they loved the message, and they would carry it to their dying day, and almost all of them would give their life for this cause. This is one of the amazing proofs of the actual bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus. One of the most amazing. These doubting, fearing <clears throat> men. 
were willing, very willing, to carry this message. Let's go to the third chapter of Acts. I'd like to just notice here a, a sermon as we think of, of preaching with passion. Acts 3, this is the chapter that begins with the story of the lame man at the beautiful gate of the temple. And we'll, we'll come back to that story just a little later. But just notice this message. We'll just read a few verses here. And this is Peter. We'll begin in the 12th verse of Acts 3. <clears throat> See, let's, let's begin in the 11th verse. As the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. This is right after this healing. All the people ran together unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. And when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, Ye men of Israel, why marvel ye at this? Or why look ye so earnestly on us as though by our own power or holiness we had made this man to walk? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, the God of our fathers, hath glorified his son Jesus Christ, whom ye delivered up and denied him in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But ye denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life, whom God hath raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses, and his name, through faith in his name, hath made this man strong, whom ye know. Yea, the faith which is by him hath given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. And now, brethren, I wot that through ignorance ye did it, as did also your rulers. But those things which God before had showed by the mouth of all his prophets, that Christ should suffer, he hath so fulfilled. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of the Lord, and he shall send Jesus Christ which before was preached unto you, whom the heavens must receive until the time of restitution of all things, which God hath spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began, and so forth. I couldn't think of anything else to illustrate preaching with passion than reading a passionate sermon. Think of this, this doubting, quick to speak, Peter who needed rebuke, who was in despair after the crucifixion and now is speaking with boldness. Speaking with boldness. Confidence. Joy. It's filling his heart and it is overflowing. Acts, the fourth chapter. Let's turn there briefly and notice a couple more things. Now, this is after some, some threatening. This is after some persecution. The 24th verse, and maybe again we should, we should back up just a little. Peter and John answered this counsel and said, Whether it be right in the sight of God to hearken unto you more than unto God, judge ye. But for we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them... They let them go, finding nothing how they might punish them because of the people. For all men glorified God for that which was done. For the man was above forty years old on whom this miracle of healing was showed. 
And being let go, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. Now, I'd like for you to, to just read this prayer because this also is evidence not only of boldness and passion, but it's also evidence of a, a selfless spirit that has been created and stirred up in them that has more desire for the furtherance of the gospel than for their own skin. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, thou art God, which hast made heaven and earth and the sea and all that in them is, who by the mouth of thy servant David has said, Why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and the rulers gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom thou hast anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel were gathered together, for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thy hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled. God bore witness to this prayer. I just ask you just to examine ourselves a little in our natural tendency. What, what would your thoughts be if you and your family were at home, <clears throat> either here or in another culture, and suddenly you became aware that the house was surrounded by your enemies and the enemies of God, and they were coming in. And so, and so you would fall on your knees before God to get your little family together around the living room family altar and you're on your knees in prayer. What will you pray? Isn't that an interesting thought? That, that these people, when they were threatened prayed that they might have the ability to speak the word of God boldly. There's not even any prayer for protection here. These men's lives had been transformed. <clears throat> the fifth chapter of the Acts. <clears throat> the 29th verse. Just notice, the, notice the bold speech here. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things. And so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Bold speech. And when these men heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. We'll notice this more than one time in the Acts where the, where the forces of good and the forces of evil met. 
And there was, there was conflict there. Think about this. They, it does not say they were just really impressed with the eloquence of these men. No. They were cut to the heart. They were angered. They were filled with wrath and talked to each other about how they might kill these men. The result of this, of this preaching, of this boldness, and the scripture says when they were let go, they just continued their zeal. They continued their preaching. And when they were scattered abroad, they just preached the word of God everywhere. This was what happened to these men. They were preaching with passion. The O in the word apostle, A-P-O, overjoyed even while suffering. Well, to just ponder this because it's not our natural tendency. Here they are before the council being threatened. Did we not straightly command you? And so forth. And these men just rejoiced as they left that place. And here's a picture of Stephen. <clears throat> and we'll go on to him next. But they were overjoyed. The scripture says that they re were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. I have tried to, to imagine within myself just, just uh, what... At what point does this boldness in our own lives, I'm thinking, and this transformation take on growth and reality and life in, in circumstances that are difficult where we can shift from, from dreading a conversation that we know will be against us to rejoicing that we are counted worthy to suffer? How does that take place? Beautiful thing. And very frustrating it was to those who took the lives of martyrs <clears throat> to see them singing as they went to the stake, lifting up their hands with joy and song as the flames were, were licking at their garments and scorching their legs, counting it all joy, looking beyond, seeing a new resurrection ahead of them, and time with the Lord, eternity ahead, and being able to transform their thoughts from dread and sorrow and potential hatred for their persecutors to being glad that they could suffer for the name of Christ. This is the work of the Spirit of God moving in the hearts of His people. <clears throat> Acts 7, let's, let's just continue on here a little. And actually in, the, in part of the sixth verse, we'll begin with a little account of Stephen, <clears throat> one of the seven that was chosen to take care of some of the affairs, natural affairs in the church. And yet he also preached, verse 8, And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. So we are not given the details of those miracles, and we'll come to, to miracles later among the apostles and by the apostles, but there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and Cyrenians, 
and Alexandrians, and of them of Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And we love this verse. Just think about this. Uh, we like this picture. Just this, this simple man standing and giving testimony in, in a council. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And they suborned men. That means they, they hired, they, they brought into employment men which said, <clears throat> We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. Think of what God is doing here. He's taking a man of natural weaknesses and passions. A man just like Elijah and just like us. And in filling him by this man's choosing and his prayers and his fasting and his endeavors for God, filling him so that when those look upon him in a time of trial, his face is absolutely peaceful. There is no rage, there is no malice, there is no fear. Ponder this as you think about what God can do with us. Because all of these things, all of these things are, are possible also with us. But we're quite impressed at, the, at this testimony, <clears throat> both in the 6th chapter and on in the 7th. The entire 7th chapter is about this man Stephen and his, his message to the people, and his stoning, and the words that he spoke as he perished. I cannot fathom being stoned. And as you think of stoning, recognize that these, these were not little, I don't think, they were little fist-sized pebbles or rocks that were thrown at these individuals. These were large stones that they knew would do damage that were cast at people over and over and over again until they died. Have you ever, have you ever been in a situation where you were working or whatever and, and you just hit your head suddenly hard? Like there, I don't know about you, but, but it's like there can, there can be aroused a... Uh, a feeling of, of like anger and frustration just hitting your head. But have you ever hit your head and it was actually someone's intent to hit your head? It adds a whole new dimension. But what does the scripture say that Stephen did? In the last of the seventh chapter... And they stoned Stephen, who was calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
And he kneeled down and cried with a loud voice. I just can't. I just can't quite fathom the strength. The strength there was here in forgiveness. Ability right in the middle, not not six months later to forgive, but right in the middle of this vicious action that was intended for total destruction. Lord, don't, don't hold this against them. Forgive them. Do not lay this sin to their charge. And he knew these men. He knew the malicious intent. This was the Spirit of God moving among the apostles and the early church. The S... A-P-O-S is signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. I think the scripture says, we may turn to this, perhaps not, that signs and wonders were done by the apostles. I want to talk just a little bit about the purposes as the gospel went out of signs and wonders. I think we, maybe it was Sunday that we spoke about this, that Jesus, when he did miracles, he was not just doing miracles for the sake of showing his power or of just doing things that were very fascinating or there was a purpose in his miracles. I want to turn to the second chapter of Hebrews and look at a passage there because the question often comes, and we may not be able to give a totally satisfactory answer here to this question of are these signs and wonders to be continued on today or were they just for that time? And so we want to make two statements that may seem contradictory, but we believe both of them. Let's read here in Acts 2 these words. We'll begin at the third verse, or excuse me, Hebrews 2. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Then notice the, the recounting here. Which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed then unto us by them that heard him. And that would have been the apostles and disciples. Verse 4. God also bearing them witness both with signs and wonders and with diverse miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, comma, according to His own will. Let's just stop there. So the gospel came, was spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed further by those who heard Him. And according to the will of God, that means whenever God chose to, He confirmed that word with signs and wonders. Now, the author here, which, which may be Paul, we're not, we're not sure. I, I would favor that. Not all do. But is speaking this in past tense. He almost is speaking it as if it's not happening anymore. 
He said, that's what the Lord did back there at the beginning of the gospel. And notice something further. That, that's not our final point, is that, that it was in the past. But, but he writes here as if it was. And let's notice a couple places. One is in Acts 19. This would be a, a sample of this. Where Paul is working miracles. This would have been quite a, a heady experience, actually, to have this happen. Let's begin reading here in the 10th verse of Acts 19. This continued by the space of two years, so that all, which, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul so that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons, and the dis diseases departed from them, and the evil spirits went out of them, and so forth. Think of that, having this power to heal everyone around you just by passing handkerchiefs and aprons back and forth. Tremendous power was given to the Apostle Paul after his conversion when he was, when he was preaching. Notice something else. Philippians, the second chapter. This is later on now. Things seem a little different for Paul. <clears throat> Paul had a good friend. And he was very sick. This is what Paul says. 25th verse of Philippians 2. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, and he that ministered to my wants. For he longed after you all and was full of heaviness, because ye had heard that he had been sick. For indeed he was sick, nigh unto death, but God had mercy on him. He was sick, no doubt, for quite a while. But God had mercy on him. And not on him only, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. So, why didn't Paul just mail him a handkerchief? Why didn't Paul just go and heal him? There was something that had changed somewhat in the way God was working. Now, we are not saying this morning that, that all the signs and wonders have passed. We believe this, that whenever God chooses again to confirm the word, the word, He will do so. And there's testimony all around the globe that this is taking place. And we could, we could take the time to tell a little story that took place down in Central America. We won't do that. But, but there are things happening around the world, even now may not think you're seeing so much in America. One place the scripture says about Jesus, he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And maybe that's the case with America. But there are places when, where he is doing works today and will work. He will work when he wants to confirm the word. <clears throat> Notice also the incident there in the first part of Acts with Ananias and Sapphira. 
thinking about signs and wonders. Amazing thing God was doing here, and not just for the confirming of the word, but perhaps partly, but so the fear of God might rise in every soul regarding righteousness and truth. What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? It appears like it was just simply they were willing to leave a false impression with the church of God. Think about that. In our own lives, God loves His people. He loves the church. He loves His gospel. Think about the amazing thing that happened there with Ananias and Sapphira. The story goes onward. Just notice the... We'll just read a few lines here. Fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And this next one, insomuch they brought forth the sick into the streets. Uh, my margin there in Acts 5.15 says, In every street. That's interesting. And laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. Another incident later on in Acts 16, Paul being grieved. You remember that story where this woman was following them and making a big declaration about them and annoying them. And Paul turned around and said to the spirit in this woman, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. There in Philippi, when Paul and Silas were there in, in jail, they, they sang and the Lord bore them witness with a great earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's bands were loosed. This incident here in the center picture with Paul preaching all night and the young man fell asleep and fell out the window and Paul stopped his preaching and went down and revived this, this young boy and then preached on till the break of day. I mean, these are not natural things. This is God working. It's like Elijah being enabled to run from the top of Mount Carmel clear down to the bottom of the, of the mountain and all clear across the valley to Jezreel. It's many miles. And he was running ahead of Ahab's horses. I mean, God works and he works mightily when he does work. This incident here after the shipwreck when Paul was on the island there of Crete and he, you know, God, was, God had saved their lives. These people on the island didn't even know him, but they were kind and, and there was some hospitality there and a fire was built. And in the middle of that, a viper wrapped around the apostle's arm. And those people knew what vipers do. No doubt they had lost family because of a viper. And Paul just shook this thing into the fire. And they thought that he was a god if he could do that. No, he was an ordinary man through whom God was working. <coughs> the T... And the word apostle refers to the turning of Saul of Tarsus. We'd like to think about Saul for just a little. Seems like we don't quite have enough time always, brethren. You can make these sessions longer for us so we can get done. We're not complaining. Saul of Tarsus. You know the story. You know the story of Saul of Tarsus, and so we can't go into a lot of detail, but notice, notice how this man, we'd like to, to just point to this, this, I think it's the first verse here in the ninth chapter, perhaps. 
And Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord. Just think about this phrase that captures just in a measure the personality and zeal and agenda and hatred that was in the heart of Saul. Being transformed on this day to, Lord, uh, what wilt thou have me to do? Now this is not just a, this is not just the story of Saul. Is it the story of anyone else here? Going from, from having our own views about ourselves, our own personality, our own confidence in our credentials and our family, our own plan, our own pride in how we get things done, a group of followers that appreciate us and kind of, kind of like our personality and, and, and uh, we just sense that we are a little bit of a leader in our social group and, and all this stuff, coupled with a disdain for others, a criticism of others. Uh, think of, you know, threatenings and slaughter meant that he intended to put these people in jail and kill some of them, and maybe that's not ever been our attitude or our, our actual intent. I would, I would dare say it's probably been our attitude. But we've never actually planned on taking anybody's life. I remember when I was very young, I guess I'll confess this again, that my mother took me, I don't know what age I was, into the bedroom and gave me a sound thrashing. And godly mother, as she walked out, I murmured, I hate you. But about two hours later, I heard her out in the family room rocking my younger brother, and singing. And my heart melted. And I was made to acknowledge, even at that age, that the mother that I sometimes so despised was a very good woman. I would call that threatenings and slaughter. It's, the same, it's, it's of the same substance. It's no different. It's the same kind of malice that the gangs of L.A. have. It's the same stuff. But the Lord can take us from here to here. And he has many of us here in this room. The turning of Saul of Tarsus. Let's, let's read Acts 9, just a few verses there. Acts, the ninth chapter. And we'll begin reading in the tenth verse. Maybe we'll read ten through twenty here, just, just describing this change. There was a certain disciple at Damascus. This is after Paul arrived there, remember being led by the hand by others. There was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias, and to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street, which is called Straight, 
and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth, and hath seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him that he might receive his sight. And Ananias said, Lord, uh, I have heard much about this man and how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priest to bind all that call upon thy name. The Lord said, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my sake. Ananias went his way and entered into the house and putting his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared to thee in the way as thou camest, hath sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And <clears throat> immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then was Saul certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogue that he is the Son of God. And there was a threat soon upon his life because the man that had persecuted the church of God was now preaching amazing transformation. We made a little list here. His eyes were opened, the eyes of his understanding. Think about this change. He desired help and guidance from the Lord. Amazing change. He felt the need to receive baptism, cleansing, forgiveness. His mind was open to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. His understanding of the scriptures were opened. He had a strong desire to declare the truth to others. And he was eloquent in explaining it. <clears throat> we marvel at, at what God can do. I want to share this little experience. Down, we had a little experience in, in Nicaragua a couple years ago. Went down to, with my brother Gary to visit there and where Pablo is and Tim Schrock and some, and were with there one Sunday, and, and uh, before the preaching service began, there was a little Bible study, and this, and this man got up and was leading this Bible study. Of course, it was all Spanish, so we didn't understand, but, but he seemed like he was very confident. He, he went from one scripture to another. He fielded questions from the congregation, and uh, so we asked someone, Tim, maybe, we asked... Uh, who, who is this man? He, I was impressed. And he said, well, a year ago, he couldn't read. He was very shy. He was backward. And I was just astounded at what the Lord can do with a little investment in a man who, who just came into the church there and had just been there a year and now was willing to get up before the congregation and, and lead a little Bible study. Pretty astounding. Able to articulate and just with confidence, even though we could not understand his words, you could just tell 
that he was confident, that he was articulate, that he knew where the scriptures were, and a year ago he was, he was not able to read. It was very impressive, and it wasn't the kind of, of impressive feeling that you might have toward men. It was like, what can God do? <clears throat> Another great change in Paul, and we'll not take the time to go there, but is, in, is described in Philippians 3, and we'll deal with this later on this week, where he went from confidence in himself to confidence in God. The L in the word apostle is love for souls. We're running out of time, but just, just briefly, you remember, I think, Joe or someone referred to this yesterday, how that toward the last of the 15th chapter of Acts, uh, Paul said, let's, let's go back and visit those churches that are established. There was a love and a care for souls that, that was filling these apostles, that they weren't just interested in establishing churches. They were interested in the souls of men. Let's go back and check and see how they're doing. And you know how the story went from there. I want to turn to 1 Thessalonians and show something else that's connected very much with the love for souls. And it's a tenderness toward souls. And I'm sure that we'll, no doubt as, as Galen goes through this book, we'll, this will get touched on. But I just want to pull out a passage here, a little little passage in the second chapter. We'd love to take the time to go through chapters 1, 2, and 3 just regarding this tenderness. But this is what it says. <clears throat> Fifth verse of chapter 2. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Notice this. This is a man speaking. But we were gentle among you. We were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. Much more that could be read here in this, in this passage, but just picture, if you can, the, the, the love and care that the apostle had for the church of God. And so he wasn't just wanting to teach. He wasn't just wanting to add numbers. He was wanting to care for these souls in a very gentle way so that they could get the message so the church would prosper in a spiritual way. And I've never heard that expression before or since, that we wanted to impart unto you our own souls. We wanted to be connected with you. And I just, I just uh, want to say something about this. In the setting in which we're living, and I'm thinking especially of our particular fraternity, there is a, there is a feeling about leadership sometimes that is not aware of the tenderness and the care that is there. And the love for souls. And we've, 
just as we've been here among, among you young people, we have wished we could be with you more. And, and for example, last evening, we sensed there was, there was some heaviness, and we, we just uh, felt pressure to go to our room, but we wanted to be with you. And we want you to know, you might observe some of us that we just walk past you here, just back and forth, we just walk past you. That does not mean we do not care. We are willing to take time to speak with any of you. We care for you. Young people are so inspiring to us. They are the generation coming on. And we love you all. And if you have any burdens, these other brethren feel the same. There is a passion here for your souls and for your welfare. And none of us have in mind, you know, we're, we're right in the middle of, of working on, on polity. And I think there is the same thing, kind of a, a feeling that, well, these brethren are wanting to just put up this big old structure and just make us all conform to it. That is not so. It is not so. And be careful about believing some of the things that you hear about leadership. The brethren that I know and the brethren that I work with shed tears for the people and are on their knees for the people. And they have tender hearts. And they love the people. They do not have in mind to manipulate. There are mistakes made, and maybe we have made some already, in the putting forth of, of polity like we have. Maybe that's a big mistake. Maybe we need to back up and look at this all again. We're willing to, whatever. But all let's be careful how we think of one another, and how we think of leadership. And we confess our our faults in not being able to convey, like the apostle did here, the care, the care and love for souls as we would like to sometimes. The E in the word apostle is simply this, everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. This comes out of Second Thessalonians, the second chapter. Let's just turn there. This is the result of the working of the Spirit in the hearts of men and women. What's the e again? Everlasting consolation and good hope through grace. 2 Thessalonians 2.17 May not have that, that right, that reference right. Yes, 16. Now the, our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God, even our Father, which hath loved us and hath given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And this is our desire, and it's the desire of the apostles, it's the desire of God, it's the desire of your leadership today in the church of God couple more comments. <clears throat> We've heard quite a bit. Well, let's, let's read first of all here. I wanted to ask some questions here, or one question. Are you willing to join in with the apostles and the faithful of all ages in their passion for the cross and their zeal for godly living? Are you willing to join in with them? This comment, the Spirit will confirm again when necessary. 
Another comment, there should be no less passion today for souls than there was then. When you think of comparing the, the time of Acts to today, there should be no less zeal. There should be no less desire to care for others. And there is no less of the Spirit available. Think about those thoughts. There may be some differences between now and in the time of the Acts, but all of those things remain the same. We heard the other evening about pressing in. Pressing in. How bad do you want it? You'll remember in the last days of Elisha, he took the king of Israel who came to visit him and he took some arrows and, and uh, had him hold his hand while he shot the arrows and that was all symbolic of battle and of victory. And then he told the king this. He said, take the arrows. And the king took the arrows. The, the issue was, was a battle with the, with the country of Syria. He said, smite them on the ground. So the king, you know, just smote about three times and, and stopped. And Elisha was, he was not enraged, but he was, he was upset. He said, why did you not keep on striking five or six times? And I've wondered about this as a picture of our zeal, our pressing in, is how much enthusiasm do we have for the things of God? May the Lord help us to continue with fervor, with fervency, with zeal. Strike the arrows. The battle, of course, is the Lord's. But He desires an indication that our heart is fervent with Him. May the Lord bless our consideration of the work of the Spirit in the Apostles'